Our Old Testament reading comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments, the Lord your God, that I commanded you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that I am that you are entering and take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over, the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever game I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he that he has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So let's continue our study of the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. Uh, we're into chapter 3 now, and we're going to talk this morning about verses 4 through 7. Paul says, uh, 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, uh, that should cue us back to uh, verse 3, which we looked at last time, where Paul is talking about, you remember last week, for those of you who were here last week, uh, Paul says in Philippians uh, verse 3, he says that those who know God are not marked by physical or ethnic signs. Specifically, he's talking about circumcision in Philippians uh, 3, 1 through 3. Instead, what they're marked of, what they're marked by is worshiping in the Holy Spirit, a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the third thing he said in verse three is not having confidence in the flesh, not having confidence in your own stat, your own status. What, you know, here it's circumcision and everything that that means uh, socially and economically for the life of the first century Jew. Now he goes into verse four and he says. But if you want to play that game, I have more reason than anybody to be confident in the flesh. Like, I have received every gift that anybody could have received from God, physically, socially, as far as religious training and upbringing. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If anybody has ever been in, when it comes to a relationship with God, I more than them. I've been in there. And then he spouts off this list of things. To all these things that he has in his past life been proud of. Let's, let's walk our way through those. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day. So we talked about circumcision last week, right? Circumcision is the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. An eternal sign that God says to Abraham and his offspring, you're my people and I'm your God. Unfortunately, over the course of millennia, Circumcision went from being a covenant sign to being an ethnic sign, a badge that we're the in people and you're the out people. And for that reason, the New Testament church abandons it and replaces it with baptism. And if you weren't here last week, it's kind of an explanation. I don't want to go back into it. Read Genesis 17 for circumcision. Go to Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13, where Paul says, you've been circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands when you were buried with Jesus in baptism. Baptism is now the new covenant sign. It is the thing that marks us. The good thing about baptism, too, unlike circumcision, is it's not gender-specific. Paul says in Galatians 3, male, female, baptized into Christ. It's not ethnic-specific. Jews, Greeks, by Greeks he means people who speak Greek, anybody besides Jews, all have been baptized into Jesus Christ. It's not socioeconomic-specific. Slave and free, both have access to baptism. You are all one in Christ Jesus. But Paul says, if circumcision is important to you, I actually was circumcised on the eighth day. I was not circumcised as an adult convert. I'm not one of the Gentiles who's turned into a Jew. I'm a real Jew. I was circumcised according to the law, eighth day after I was born. Of the people of Israel, that's who I am. I am ethnically one of the Old Testament people. I'm not one of these converts. I'm in. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He makes it even more specific. Not only am I a Jew, but I'm actually one of the Jews, Paul says, that can trace his heritage. I can get on genealogy.com and trace my heritage back to Abraham. Most of the Jews of Jesus' day could not do that through the, um, you know, the, the existential crisis that was the exiles, the Assyrian destruction of Samaria in 702 BC, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. A lot of that ethnic heritage was lost, unless you happen to be from the tribe of Judah. Paul, though, his family has managed to maintain that link, to say, 
I know that I'm in. I have the papers to prove it. I can print out my family tree from you, for you and give it to you and show you that I'm one of the in ones. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Out of all the Hebrews, you know, every group does this, right? Like, there's a circle of people who are in. Once you get into that layer of the onion, you'll see that there's more circles inside. And that there's this inner circle in any group, you know, on any sports team or at the job site or in your family even, your group of friends. There's always this level of insider. And Paul says, if you want to find out where I'm at, just get into the inside room. The farthest in you can go into this onion. Peel back all the layers. I'm as inside as you can get. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. That's a name that's, if you've read the New Testament, that's a name that's uh, uh, pretty common. Uh, we Christians like to talk about the Pharisees as uh, though they're uh, legalists and walking around with scowls on their face. This actually wasn't the way the Pharisees uh, acted in the first century. Uh, and, and the Bible doesn't portray them uh, as such. The Pharisees were a group of people who became convinced that the reason why they were slaves to the Romans, the reason why the Jews were slaves to the Romans, is because God's people had stopped keeping the law. They'd stopped obeying God's will. And the Pharisees decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make sure that we obey God's law. We're going to work as hard as we can to keep all the laws. And so God has no reason not to liberate us from uh, the Romans. And so they worked hard at this. Uh, they also, it's, I, I think this is the case, the Pharisees saw themselves in some ways as a counter-temple movement. The temple in Jerusalem is run by the Romans. It's run by the Sadducees who were in bed with the Romans. And the Pharisees thought of themselves as, they're not, they're not God's true people. They're actually working together with the Romans to keep us under their thumb. We are going to be faithful to God's law. And so the Pharisees prescribed for themselves rules which only the priest had to obey in the Old Testament such as the kind of rules about washing hands before eating, stuff that the common average Jew on the street didn't have to do because they weren't priests. The Pharisees say, we're going to take that on because we are going to be especially pure. We're going to be especially loyal to God's law. Paul says, I was one of them. I was one of the good guys. We were all good guys, but I was one of the really good guys. As to the law of Pharisee, moving down into verse 6 now. As to zeal, that word zeal is actually a technical term. There's a party, there's a, 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 it's not a, it's not necessarily a political party because they don't have offices and, and, uh, voted upon members. But there's a Jewish party that Josephus tells us about during Jesus' day in the first century. It's a party called the Zealots. And the Zealots were pretty much akin to like the French underground during World War II. They were the ones who were blowing up the train lines, assassinating the German officers, cutting telegraph lines. The Zealots in the first century were the ones who were determined to overthrow Rome violently with military means. The Zealots are the ones who kick off the, the Jewish-Roman AD 66 war, which ends up with the temple getting destroyed by the Roman armies. Paul says, I could have been in that group. I was a Zealot. As far as zeal is concerned, if somebody came along and tried to, delete, tried to lead the Jewish people astray from following God's law, like I was convinced this Jesus guy was doing, I was ready to off him. And you remember the story from Acts of Paul. When, when we first meet Paul, that's what he's doing. He's going around and finding out which one of his Jewish brothers and sisters is maybe behind their back worshiping this Jesus character. And then he has him killed. 
Paul says, that was me. I was a true insider. Now, check out this last line in verse 6. He says this about himself. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. When it came to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. You guys, those of you who are Lutheran, I think you're required to know the story of Martin Luther. Uh, For those of you who aren't Luther, Lutheran, many of you do know the story of Martin Luther. If not, I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. It's a crazy good story. If you're going to have, if you're going to have a story that is a foundational story for your group, in every, every group that you have, again, whether it's, you know, your local golf team or, um, uh, the religion that you belong to or your family, there's going to be these foundational stories. Uh, not to brag, but Lutheranism is, is a pretty good foundational story. Uh, Luther is, uh, his life is dramatic. Uh, he's a genius. He's one of those geniuses, though, that's extremely aware of his own genius. He's aware that he is brilliant and that he's dynamically powerful and that people follow what he says. He starts off as, a, as an Augustinian monk. He's a faithful Roman Catholic, uh, and he wants to obey God's law. He wants to be righteous. He tries as hard as he can to obey God's law, uh, but he struggles with it. He struggles with his sin. His father, confessor, uh, tells him at one point, like, you're not even really a very good sinner. Like, you're so worried about your sin, you should actually go out and do something really bad instead of bringing to me all this lame stuff that you bring to me. But Luther is crushed by his own guilt. He's crushed with the knowledge that Jesus, that God in Jesus Christ is righteous. When Luther hears that phrase, when Luther hears that God is righteous, all it means to him is that God's going to crush me. God doesn't like me. God is righteous means that I'm not, and so he's going to blow me up someday. He comes to understand by reading the scripture and by the power of the Holy Spirit that when the Bible talks about God's righteousness, though, it doesn't just mean that God is holy and he's going to blow up sin. It also means that God wants to give his righteousness as a gift to those who believe in him, to absolve them from their guilt, to forgive their sins. When Luther comes to realize this, he's liberated from this huge weight of guilt. That's our foundational story. It's a great story. One of the things it does to uh, those of us who are Lutherans, though, is it makes us see everybody's story with that same lens. I was in a Bible study one time. It's been maybe about 10 years ago. And the person who was leading the Bible study said this phrase. He said, the Apostle Paul, like Martin Luther, was crushed by his... He tried to keep the law. And he was crushed by his guilt until he met Jesus and received forgiveness of sins. That's an easy thing for us Lutherans to do, is to interpret Paul through the lens of Martin Luther. But when you actually let Paul talk about his own experience, that's just not the case. Paul was, ne- Paul was not crushed by his sin. Underneath the law, I was blameless. Paul's walking along the Damascus Road, not searching for God at all. Completely satisfied in his own existence. Completely happy with who he was. He didn't have any trouble sleeping at night. He didn't worry about, did I say the wrong thing? Or maybe I thought a bad thought about five minutes ago. Underneath the law, he was blameless and he was good to go. It's not until he meets Jesus that he actually starts to say stuff like, I'm the chief of sinners. Or like in Romans 7, the thing that I want to do, I can't do. It's not until he meets Jesus that he gets there. But before that, he's completely complacent. Completely happy with who he is. The thing about the law is that sometimes it crushes us. We Lutherans like to imagine that the law always crushes us. 
but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it makes you feel pretty, pretty good about yourself. Sometimes your status before God, the things that you do, the groups that you belong to, you're feeling okay. I'll be honest with you, that's one of the burdens that I have as a pastor now, is that if I get up here and I preach to you guys and I say, I'm going to offer the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of those of you who are feeling guilty for your, for, for your sins, I'm going to reach maybe four or five of you. The rest of you don't really feel guilty for your sins at all. And I'm not saying... Part of this is good. Part of this is you've been liberated by Jesus Christ. Part of this, though, is that we've been told so much. Now, let me, let me speak to those of you who are Christians and those of you who are Lutherans. We've been told so much that you're not saved by works, that you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, that we're no longer, we're no, we're no longer set off by our bad works. It's easy not to worry about those things. After all, Jesus has paid for them. It's easy to be like Martin Luther, or not Martin Luther, but, but, but the Apostle Paul. It's easy to say, under the law, well, I'm blameless. I know I do some bad stuff, but uh, one quick prayer and Jesus has forgiven all that. What do you do when the law doesn't crush you? There's other things the law can do too, though. Your status, the identity that you build up in yourself as somebody who's a good person, I've got it all together. For Paul, that eventually just left him lame and cold and empty. He thought it was good stuff but it ended up not being good stuff. Do you, uh, this is a dumb question. Almost everybody, all of you, almost all of you, like good steak, right? Do you remember the first time you had good steak? I, I did not receive good steak uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't blame uh, my mom and dad at all. I do not give Harry good steak. Harry thinks he likes steak. If you ask him, he'll tell you he likes steak. He has not yet tasted good steak. <laughs> he, he, the, uh, I, I never got good steak when I, maybe if I begged, I would get like if we went to Ponderosa or something, I would get the kids steak tips, you know. Angela and I worked at a steak, a steakhouse in college. We were servers at the same steakhouse. That's not where we met. We, we chose to work there together. It, it was a Ponderosa type place, you know. And like the steak that they served, that was the kind of steak that I was eating when I was in college, you know, like the sirloin that's, you know, 75% really tough, bland beef, and then 25% gristle and fat. That's the kind of thing you get at those places. But shortly after I graduated from college, I still remember this. Maybe this isn't the best place in the world, but I went to Tony's in Alton, and I got the uh, pepper loin there. And that, then I knew that there was a whole world that I had not yet experienced. <laughs> you know? It's hard to go back to Ponderosa after you've eaten real steak. Right. I was, another example. About 15 years ago, Angela and I went over to her cousin Adam's house, and uh, he was watching a football game. And I can still remember this. It was the Cowboys and the Giants. And he had the first, Adam had the first HD television I'd ever seen. And I could not believe. I sat there like I wasn't even, it wasn't even at the football game. Like, it was so real. You, you, you don't even remember that. Like, my poor children don't know a world without HD television. Like, you'll reach out and, like, put your hand to the screen and, you know, touch George Teague on the helmet or something like that. So uh, you're just used to it now, right? Harry and I have been watching. I'm sorry for all the sports stuff. I apologize if this isn't your thing. Harry and I have been watching the 1985 NLCS between the Cardinals and the Dodgers on YouTube. All the games are there. You know, and you turn it on, and it's 
not in HD. Like in 1985, I was happy just to see it in color. And now you look at it and you're like, what is this, hazy? And it's like watching a cartoon or something. Like Harry's like, oh, this is blurry. And well, yeah, it is blurry. You know, once you watch sports in HDTV or a movie or some National Geographic show, you're not going to want to go back to the old style TV. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, the life that I had back then was sirloin at Ponderosa. It was watching football on old broadcast over-the-air television. I count all of that as loss now for the sake of Christ. I have met Jesus. and He wasn't guilty. He wasn't like, God, please let me find forgiveness in you. He's just walking down the street doing his job. And bam, Jesus meets him, and all of a sudden, he gets pepperloin at Tony's. And he knows his life is forever changed because he's met the real deal. He's met the true happiness. He's met the one thing, the one deep, longing pleasure that you all desire. He's tasted it, and everything else takes, tastes lame after that. If C.S. Lewis would make royalties for every time I've read this quote in a pulpit or adult Bible study, he and his legacy would be extremely wealthy. I'm going to do it one more time. C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. See, one of the points about the law is not this. It's not God wants you to be unhappy. God wants you to worship Him and be miserable. Because when you worship God and you're miserable, then you really mean it. Now, that's actually not what's going on with the law. There are times when God wants to give you the law because He's given you some good stuff. But it's just not good enough. And your desire for God, which maybe you feel is satisfied with your church membership, or your tithe, or the nice button-up polo that you're wearing right now, Maybe all of that is good, but it's not quite as good as Jesus. And if somehow you can just taste Jesus, you'll look at all that stuff and you'll say, that's eh, fine. But you know what's better than that? Jesus. Our Lord doesn't find our desires too weak, too strong, but instead they're too weak. Lewis says we're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. There's nothing wrong with drink and sex and ambition. Except once you taste Jesus, all that stuff is lame sauce. He's offering us, Lewis says this, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what Paul is saying. I spent my whole life building up this status. I was great. I had a good job. I had a nice lawn. I looked sharp. I was an upstanding citizen. I had my genealogy.com thing down pat. But when I met Jesus, it was all loss. All the things that we build our identity around, it all becomes lame and boring and empty against the reality of knowing, genuinely knowing the real God and being known by that real God, the dying and rising Jesus. That's true reality. That's true pleasure. That's true meaning. Amen.